0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. It it feels like a while. I know the last podcast I did... I basically said, I don't know when I'm going to be back. I'll tell that again at the beginning here. I don't know when I'm going to be back. This is a kind of really busy travel season for me. Uh, Just kind of worked out that way. We were doing one week on, one week off for a while. And now I think it's like eight weeks in a row. Uh, I did have a week of family vacation in there. And then last week, the entire team was at CNU in Oklahoma City, so just in the office for like two days this week, and then back out, and then next week I think I'm out four days, and makes it hard to 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 keep up and, and record stuff. But 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 this week uh, we're gonna bring back my friend and colleague Lauren Fisher to ask some questions from the Strong Nouns Action Lab. Lauren, welcome back to the Strong Nouns Podcast.
0: Hey, Chuck, thanks for having me on. I'm glad that we're, um, I think we're getting into a rhythm with this. I think we're going to be able to hit it kind of on a regular basis and make sure that we talk about the questions people are asking on the Action Lab.
1: I think we are too. And I'm, I'm excited about it because I get a lot of questions in my email inbox. And I just sometimes have to say to people, like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have the bandwidth to answer this question, especially when people send me like, you know, 10 paragraph questions. Uh, with like four subparts, and I'm just like I, <laughs> I don't have it in me. Like I just don't have the time. So this is a nice a nice way to do that, and be responsive to people, and also kind of keep things moving ahead. You and I spent a whole week together last week, along with the rest of the team. Um, before we get started, your thoughts about uh, Oklahoma City, and I don't know how much CNU you got, but you certainly got a lot of strong towns. What, what was your takeaway from last week?
0: Well, I, I really liked Oklahoma City. I thought it was kind of cool, and I liked the downtown. Did get a lot of strong towns, uh, and that was a good time. Uh, I, we got to meet up with some friends at Urban 3 for dinner one of the nights that we were there, and I really enjoyed talking to the people there and kind of actually developing an in-person relationship yeah. with the people who we worked <laughs> so closely with. Uh, so that was a good time, too.
1: It was crazy because, uh, you know, seven years ago, it was the entirety of Strong Towns and the entirety of Urban Three going out for lunch at CNU, which meant me and Joe and Josh McCarty. And now it was basically the entirety of Urban Three and the entirety of Strong Towns, my, minus a couple important people, but you know for the most part everybody was there and it was a room full of people with you know 20 20 some of us there total so that was, was really cool was it only 20
0: cool. some i feel like it was more than
1: that i think we had 11 and i think they had 11 at the okay. at the dinner so that's my mass is 22 yeah and we had 3 that weren't there and they had i think two that weren't there so yeah it's kind of amazing a uh, very proud moment for joe and i because you know we love you guys and and I think one of the fun things about where we're at right now especially given my history with this organization and this movement and everything we've done is is to be able to watch this great team of people work with other like great teams of people and the CNU group is one the Urban 3 group is another the next night we had dinner with some people from Shreveport and New Orleans and places that we've been kind of intimate with over the years and to to see everybody be able to interact with you know Miss Dorothy and some of the other people that were there it just I uh, really, you know, it makes my heart grow three sizes. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very cool. I know you had a couple of things you wanted to go through before we got into the questions. Which are those things, Lauren? You're the communications person. You got it going on. So I, I want to make sure and defer to you.
0: Absolutely. So I had some podcast recommendations for you listeners to enjoy. Uh, Just today, I got to listen to Chuck on the Regenerative Skills podcast. That's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the normal places or at regenerativeskills.com. And it
1: regenerative kind of, skills. Well, how come I don't remember that one? You know, you you schedule <laughs> me for like two or three of these a week. And I, I apologize, <laughs> but I can't like remember all of them in my brain. What what was this one like? What was the big deal about this one?
0: So this one kind of gets into the relationship between regenerative practices. I think that generally this podcast talks about um, like uh, building resilient oh, yeah. uh, I e- remember ecosystems. One. Were they and in so- Europe when they recorded? I don't know.
1: Okay. I Um, seem to remember. Yeah. This one was good. Like I remember this one pushed me out of my comfort zone. So yeah, people should, if you're interested, you should listen to that one. That's good. Yeah.
0: What I thought was really compelling about this episode was that you talked about your experience living in a rural place in Minnesota, in a suburban place in Minnesota and an urban place in Minnesota and how you were able to find deep, personal connections with your neighbors when you lived kind of in a farm situation growing up and how you were able to find something different, but still as fulfilling when you now live in in a more urban neighborhood, but kind of how you struggled to find that when you lived in a suburban kind of middle ground.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. It was a good conversation. So where, where can people get that one?
0: It's called the Regenerative Skills Podcast. Look for the episode with Chuck Marone on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever podcasts are.
1: Regenerative skills. Yeah. Okay, I have to do a, a word search for. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to spell regenerative in my head. That's one of those that, like, <laughs> I'm guessing word autocorrects for me as I'm writing. So, yeah, we're good.
0: Uh, The next one that I wanted you guys to check out was an episode of The Politics of Everything. I think it's been out for about a month now. It's called Too Fast or Too Furious. And this 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 episode was great. It features Chuck. It features Jason Slaughter, who is the founder of the Not Just Bikes YouTube channel, which we promote quite often. And it also featured Jesse Singer, who is the author of There Are No Accidents,
1: Um, that's very good. Yeah. That was a really good mix too. uh, the way they, I did listen to that one. The way they mixed it up was really great. And the way that they, I think found, you know, the three of us who come at this from slightly different ways, but are arriving at similar destinations in terms of this whole reckless driver narrative. So yeah, it was, I was grateful that they did that podcast
0: and this was one of their most downloaded podcasts of all time so far. Really? So, it speaks to the power of the movement for transportation reform for one thing, but it also says something about how important the work strong towns the strong towns movement is doing. How important the work that not just bikes is doing to show people a better system of development, a better transportation system, and of of course Jesse Singer's work as an author. So, that is also available. It's called uh, The Politics of Everything. Look for the episode called Too Fast or Too Furious and find it where you can find podcasts.
1: Lauren, I love how you explain that. This is why you do your job and you're so good at it. And I, cause I'm like, yeah, listen, this is pretty cool. And you're like, this is, so, <laughs> because the work <laughs> Strong Dads is doing is so important. I'm like, yeah, it is. But I'm glad, I'm glad that you're here to say it because, uh, you know, you do it so well. And oh, uh, you. you got, you know, you, you made that connection and I'm glad that you did. I, I think one of the things that I've been really frustrated on and people listen to this podcast will know, yeah, I've been really frustrated about our inability to break through on this reckless driver narrative. And the fact that the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Vox, you know, you go down this list of places that are running these just ludicrous, you know, theories about why uh, traffic fatalities are up. And and you have been kind of, uh, let me for lack of a better word, like beating your head against a wall, trying <laughs> to you know broach this topic with them. You do our media work, our communications work. I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but can you talk about just a little bit of the frustration that you've had? Um, places that have been willing to talk to you in the past on other things have just kind of you know blown you off on this one, haven't they?
0: I mean, in the past, we had worked with the Wall Street Journal on on some stuff. We'd worked on just several media outlets that we had relationships with. When- well,
1: I know I've written multiple columns for CNN. And CNN yeah. has said, anytime you want to write something, let us know. And, and then we did. We did. We let, we let yeah. them know. <laughs> um, we <laughs> were like... like- yeah, not this interested.
0: is going on and it's so important that we shift the focus away from, from driver error and to like the system that produces the driver error, because you, you can't change human nature, but you can change like the systems that humans. Oh, I don't
1: operate. know, Lauren, we can put some chips in people's brains and uh, fix the humans.
0: I don't know if I'm on board for that. Chuck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I so, am not. Just of so... Chips
0: and brains. We, we, Offered them like this uh, facts-based approach for discussing this topic. This um, the concept that we can actually test, which is how do the road conditions contribute to this, and that's way easier to to theorize about and test than it is to test whether people are really angry. Uh, Right.
1: Right. Right. Are people, are people having, uh, I, I can't remember all the ridiculous terms, but you know, like internal angst and frustration over having to wear masks. And so they, they take out a moment of ecstasy on the road and drive too fast. It just, yeah. Just That's absurd. Yeah, it's it is absurd. absurd. It's, it's insultingly absurd and, you know, and it's I, divisive
0: because then we make it about the person that we don't like rather than about the fact that we have to share the road, but
1: I just want people to know because I've been really, you know, frustrated about this, and people who have listened to this podcast have heard me go on about this a number of times. And you know, you share my frustration. You've actually been the one who's been doing amazing work and getting us on this New Republic podcast. Is a New Republic right, or was that the article that was written? I can't remember.
0: It's yep, yeah, it's called it it's the new republic is the publication and the podcast is the politics of everything.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So it, you know, great job making that making that happen. And, you know, we've seen other things break through. I know the article we were sharing today with the NTSB chair who got hit and was in a crash, and her quotes were priceless. I mean, basically parodying stuff from confessions of a recovering engineer saying, you know, this is not, you're having an accident here every week. That's not driver error. That's roadway design. And it was just real heartening to hear that message starting to get out above this course of reckless driving.
0: I think it's going to have a breakthrough. And I think that we are going to be able to, to be a part of that breakthrough. So really excited. I wanted to point out just real quick, is that um, we've been working with a guy named Carlos Waters at CNBC. Uh, He's doing this suburban development series on YouTube. Uh, You can find the first episode uh, or segment of that on YouTube. It's called, How Suburban Sprawl Weighs on the US Economy. And this is something that I I think he meant to have like one video and then he talked to Chuck and (laughs) it exploded into many videos. Yeah.
1: That's (laughs) as we were talking, I think we were scheduled for like 15 minutes and then like an hour and a half later, he was like, I don't know what to do now. We had a really great conversation and he is a very engaging person, had great questions. We were a very small part of the first video, yeah, I sense that there's a lot more brewing in that series. And yeah, it's probably good to plug in now. It felt like that was going somewhere important.
0: Yeah, it is. And this next video that's coming out on March 31st, he hasn't sent me the title yet. Uh, but I think that by the time this podcast goes, I might be able to put the title into oh, great. The show notes or something. But he's going to focus uh, more intensely on mixed-use development and affordability and how the growth Ponzi scheme contributes to the long-term insolvency of the suburbs and the cities that support the suburbs. So if you tune into that, you're going to have a lot more Strong Towns insights. And uh, it's been really great to work with with Carlos on that. And I'm glad that you got to have such a great interview with him.
1: Yeah, we did have a great time. You know, for longtime listeners of this podcast and for people who are members of Strong Towns and, and, and part of this movement some of this is going to be old hat. Like you've heard this message before. I think what is new here is that it's starting to break out of our bubble. You know, like, like we have, I don't know how many thousands of people download this podcast every episode. It it is a lot. And it's, it's not an insignificant amount, but it's, it is insignificant compared to the audience of CNBC or the audience of CNN um, or the audience of the New York times. And it's not that we need those places for validation, but our movement does need those places to adopt our language, our framing, our rhetoric in order to succeed. And it's, you know, it's, it's a good thing. And I hope people feel a validation from it that others are starting to hear this message that, that you know you all are listening to, you all are supporting, you're supporting financially, you're supporting it by sharing it with others you're supporting it by talking to your own city council about it the support that we have long promised uh, of other people having this talk you're not alone you're not isolated uh, that we've we've been building that and it's now starting to really break through in a big way in the national media thanks to your work lauren uh thanks to the support of our members and and thanks to you know i just think a long process of pushing out a very thoughtful, nuanced, sophisticated message. So yeah, we're getting there, aren't we?
0: Yeah, we're getting there. And those those CNBC videos, the last time I looked at the first one, it had 800,000 views and that was like two or three months ago. So
1: yeah. And, and that's not going to be the explosive one.
0: <laughs> so that's what I got for you, Chuck. That's what I got for people to check out uh after you listen to this podcast well
1: i know whenever we say you can get links um we run all these podcasts as a as a post on our in our media page on our website so people can go there and uh you'll have the links including likely the the cnbc link by the time this does run i hear you and then you can also go to podcast.strongtowns.org and it'll be there too so yeah all right, you got some questions. We're going to talk about from the action lab. Do do we want to like give people a little update again on the action lab and where they can go to submit their questions cuz you know, we did this like 2 months ago. I know we want to do it every 4 to 6 weeks. People should know where to where to go, right?
0: Yeah, if you've got a question that you want uh, somebody from the Strong Towns team or somebody else from the Strong Towns movement to look into and address, check out actionlab.strongtowns.org and then scroll down. There's some little speech bubble icons. If you click on those, it'll take you to the community discussion board. And um, there's three sections. One is questions for Strong Towns and one is uh, more like community discussion area. And we're going to take the questions for these podcast episodes from questions for strong towns. Although today I do have one in here that was actually in the discussion itself, because it was just such a good question. So actionlab.strongtowns.org.
1: That's great. On that site, we've, we've tried to take our best content, our most actionable content. People, people always told us that they want three things uh, from us. You know, the, the people who are more than casual readers, who are members, who are people who want to get stuff done in their place, they've said, give us more examples, give us more like how-to guides and resources, and you know, give us like the best content that you've got. And so we went in and we organized this site, the Action Lab, to do exactly that. So when you go there, there's big buttons. We've simplified it all down, you can find what you want, you can do a search. If people are searching for stuff and they're not finding it, we see that and we try to respond and add that stuff. So that site's been up for 14 months now, and it's, it's, a, it's a really great resource. If you're ready to move beyond just uh, the podcast and the articles and you want to get something done, actionlab.strongtowns.org is, is where it's at. So go, go for it, Lauren. Let's, let's do these questions.
0: Yeah, so the first question is actually the one that was not from Questions for Strong Towns, but from the General Discussion Board. It's from Theodore Koltz, Uh, And he wrote, I and many others who are interested in urban environments appreciate the value a public park can add. Two that come to his mind are uh, New York City's Central Park and the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. So his question is, how do we calculate or value the utility that these spaces provide a city compared to the foregone tax revenue and economic activity that might otherwise occupy the space?
1: That's an interesting question. I don't know as I would frame it like that, but I get I get what he's getting at. He he, he right? Like what did you say? Is <laughs> I can't a remember. Theater. theater. Okay. Yeah. Great. I, I think I get what he's what he's getting at. How do you quantify this? Let me answer this in. In two ways. First, you know, of course, Joe has done this analysis. Urban Three, Joe Minicozy has done this analysis in places where they've looked at the value of, of parkland or open space. I think the best one they did was here in Minnesota, down in Minneapolis, around some of the great lakes that they have in Minneapolis. And they've developed these lakes not the way they've developed the lakes up here in the Brainerd Lakes area, which is divide up and kind of privatize the shoreline in 100 or 125 foot increments. Down in the Twin Cities, they actually kept the shoreline public for the most part and you know had the houses basically off of the public space. And so they looked at two different lakes, one where the lake had been privatized. So the lake was an amenity for the homeowners along the lake. And what that did is that it drove up the property values for the properties right there along the lake. But then when you got one block off or two blocks off the lake, the property values just collapsed in comparison, right? They were very, very low. There wasn't a lot of amenity because if you lived two blocks off the lake, you, you didn't have any access to the lake. The lake was completely privatized. So like what difference did it make that you were near a lake? And then they contrasted that with the lakes where the entire shoreline had been kept public. So if you lived two blocks away or six blocks away or 12 blocks away, You just had a nice walk to a beautiful trail system and shoreline and ability to rent a kayak or a canoe or go out on this lake in some other way. It was a great natural green space. And they showed the difference in this, you know, in this area. And it was astounding. I mean, the the level of value that was created and wealth that was created. Uh, when you kept the shoreline public was just amazing. And it was reflected right in the value of those, those properties. It, the property two blocks off was worth many, many multiples on the lake with the public shoreline than it was on the other. And this is, I think, the way that I would think about this. I get this a lot where people will say, well what if you know what if we took Central Park? And we, you know, because housing is at such a scarcity in New York and we cut it up and we put housing in it, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a better return on investment than this park? And, you know, my my gut answer is like, I don't know, maybe you certainly would devalue everything around the park. I mean, all the land around the park is really, really valuable because of the park, you know, because of its proximity to the park. And I, I actually think that that is the way we need to look at it. There are very few people who would say that cities should not have parks. There are very few people who would say that parks are not an essential part of a city. So often when we when we cross that threshold and we agree that we want parks and cities because they provide green space, they provide an outlet for people to gather, they provide uh, you know, for cleaner air and stormwater management and all these values and benefits that in a sense compensate for the lack of your own private space in a city. You might live in a smaller place than you would in a suburb, but you have these great parks around you. You have these great public spaces. You have these great amenities that you uh, otherwise would not have. I think people who design cities and who live in cities and who understand cities recognize that parks are an essential part of it. The question then becomes, how do you deliver that? And I think this is where we struggle a lot because I look at like what we do in my city, and what we do in my city is we provide parks by kind of finding the cheapest land we can on the edge of the city, or a developer gives us a little leftover scrap here or there, or we've got you know this this bit of land that nobody used. And we make that a park. And the first thing we do is we put in a big parking lot and we expect people to drive to this park to participate in it. And so what you wind up with is a park as an amenity, the same way that like the McDonald's drive-through is an amenity or the Walmart is an amenity. It's, it's something that you, know, you can access and get to, but it doesn't really reflect on your own property value. It's kind of just like an underlying, I get this because I live in the city. If you contrast that with Central Park or you contrast that with, I've talked here about Gregory Park in my hometown. Gregory Park is the central square, the, the park in the middle of the city that was part of the original plat. And I, I, I emphasize it because this was the way we built cities and we did it for a reason. And that reason was to build wealth in the community. Central Park uh, and Gregory Park here in Brainerd are these squares in the middle of the city. And they are designed and built in such a way that all the properties, not just adjacent to them around them, but one block off, two blocks off, three blocks off, four blocks off, all benefit from that location, the idea that We don't drive to Gregory Park. People get out and they walk. They walk a block. They walk two blocks. It's part of, I take my dog for a walk every night. I walk through Gregory Park twice. I walk to it on the way uh, to, and I walk past my church, and then I do a little loop through the neighborhood, and then I come back through Gregory Park. It's a beautiful park. It's a great place. I I live in this neighborhood partially because it's such a great park. And so I, I think the question we have to ask is not necessarily what is the utility But given the fact that we're going to build parks, how do we build them in such a way that creates the most amount of value adjacent to them? So you're not saying how much is this park land worth if it were converted to homes or if it were converted to businesses or if if we made Gregory Park in the middle of town a Walmart instead of a park. What you're saying is that we're going to have a park. We can, A, put it out on the edge of town and create a parking lot to it and have everybody drive to it, in which case it's gonna create a little bit of value for everybody, but not you know anything really that measurable. Or we can say, we're gonna put it in a location and design it in such a way that it will create tremendous amount of value in the adjacent properties, value that we can actually measure, that will actually make those properties worth more, thus taking this public investment and getting a higher return out of it. Does that, does that make sense as a juxtaposition, Lauren? I, I don't feel like I answered his question directly, but that's kind of how I think we should think about parks.
0: No, I think, that, I think that what you're saying makes a ton of sense. That if, if you uh, reframe the, that thought process from what is the value of the land itself to what is the value that it adds to the properties around it, that that's, that's really quite compelling.
1: We we um, see this in public buildings too. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. Okay. We see this in public buildings and I even have seen, you know, water plants built in like the late 1800s, early 1900s that are these gorgeous brick like Romanesque, you know, columns kind of buildings, but, but even like old city halls and old County government buildings and what have you uh, they would build them in these beautiful, gorgeous styles with marble stairs and marble columns and, and, you know, uh, put a ton of amenity into them. They didn't, they did that when they were very poor, right? I think that's the first thing to recognize. They didn't do it because they were vain or because, you know, uh, they had money to waste or because they misvalued things. They did it because if you were going to build a public building for x amount of money, you might as well put 1.2 x into it or 1.25 x into it. you know, make it a little bit more valuable, but have that value then reflected in all the properties around it. When we build a public building today, we tend to, Uh, not build it at X, we tend to build it at 0.8X or 0.7X. We devalue it. We're like, how do we make this as utilitarian as possible? And we don't bother about architecture. We don't bother about how it interacts with the neighborhood. We surround it with parking lots. We make it just very functional and utilitarian. And it, because of that, it tends to function like a Walmart or like a Target or like a, a, you know, just a routine office park in that it devalues the things around it. It actually doesn't create wealth around it. When we build schools of the past, we used to build schools that you would love to have lived across the street from. Because it was a really nice building. It was a really nice place. It reflected well on the neighborhood. Now you don't want to live anywhere near a school because it's a car sewer with a big parking lot and a, a stormwater ditch out front and, and an, ugly, you know, an ugly building with some goofy glass and some you know, aluminum wrap. It, it's, it, it is not, uh, you know, the strategy we use today is we create value by driving down cost. The strategy of the past, and I would say the strategy of a strong towns approach is we create value by building things of worth where that value is then reflected in real dollar terms in the value of the surrounding community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So theater also asked whether there's like a theory or an approach to determining what uh, the right amount of allocation to these sorts of projects is. So is there any theory as to how one allocates an efficient amount of park or green space? I wonder if this is a place where we can talk about the private to public investment ratio.
1: Yeah, maybe. It's such a hard thing because I, I was chatting with Mitch Silver at CNU. Mitch Silver was the former parks commissioner in New York City. Um, he was for a, a number of years and did an amazing job. And One of the things he was most uh, proud of is you know, the number of projects that they did in New York City, particularly in disadvantaged and disenfranchised neighborhoods, um, going back and, and doing these projects. I, I'm going to have Mitch on the podcast so he can talk about this himself because it, it's, a, it's amazing work. I look at New York and to me, it's always been baffling to me that New York did not have the greatest parks in the country because they have the greatest like, value per acre. They have the most productive land use. And any investment you make in a park is gonna be returned multiple times in terms of the tax base and wealth that you're creating in the community. These are, these are astounding investments. But I go to a city like mine and we have 23 parks. The reality is, is we should have like five. (laughs) But we have 23 because the idea is always, well, we can get a grant to build a new park and we can get, you know, right now we're actually getting a grant from the state to build a new park. And if you go to our park committee and say, show us your capital budget and all this, they are struggling because they like, we have enough money to maintain well, like five parks. We have 23 parks. like We do not have anywhere near the amount of money we need to maintain these. So I don't know if there's like a unifying theory there. I feel like at the end of the day, when you talk about that, that private to public wealth ratio, that idea that you know, we should have $20 minimum, $40 uh, it would be optimum private investment for every $1 of public investment, what you're really talking about is your overall capacity to maintain and take care of things and make them really nice. Gregory Park in the middle of my town is not adding value when it's overgrown with weeds and it's not well-maintained and the fountain is broken, which by the way, that was its condition like 10 years ago. It's providing a lot more value today because we're actually out maintaining it and doing some things and we got the fountain fixed. And But you know it could provide a lot, lot more. It can't because we're spending money doing minimal amount of maintenance on 19 parks that we can we can't afford that are providing very little value that's not the case in a city like new york where new york city has like an abundance of dollars has every, every every reason to make those investments and see enormous returns from them and should just be full like pedal to the metal how do we take our existing parks and just continually make them better you know i don't know i get the question but i think at the end of the day they're all going to be kind of a a local nuance in terms of your own community's overall capacity to, to, to do good with this approach.
0: Yeah, definitely. The next question is about speed traps. So get ready. Danny Scheibel asks, is there any data or precedent regarding high visibility traffic cameras and how they affect driver behavior? And what's interesting is he, he follows this up with well, I see utility and traffic cameras, uh, he wants them to function more like a speed bump and less like a speed trap. So something that actually causes people to slow down rather than catches them in the act
1: of yeah. speeding. That's interesting. I'm guessing the emphasis here is on high visibility, right?
0: Yeah. Like paint it red, make it flashing. Like I guess when you're driving down the road and you see those things that show you the speed
1: that you're going. Or or you know when you're driving along and then you see the police officer parked on the side of the road, right?
0: Yeah, I've been there. And I try really hard not to be a speeder, but I have definitely experienced no,
1: that. No, everybody's been there. Here's the interesting thing about speed bumps. And I I think this is an important thing because I I get I get the question, right? Like we want this to affect driver behavior, not be just like a a revenue stream for the city, right? Which I totally agree. But let, let's make an important distinction about speed bumps. Speed bumps only work in really low volume situations, because if you have speed bumps in high volume situations, what you have is you have this very rapid adjustment in speed, and that causes all kinds of havoc. That that's where I'm people to happen. that's where people get killed, right? So we have to understand what we're asking for here when we have situations where you have traffic going very fast or high volume. What you don't want is you don't want a situation where people suddenly slam on their brakes because they feel like, okay, I'm, I'm going to hit a speed bump or, okay, I'm going to get a ticket if I do. And because that causes the, the, the very types of fatality crashes, you know the very type of traumatic events that you're trying to get rid of by lowering speeds. With that being said, what if we signaled you know, not just to locals, but to everybody. Like, what if it was obvious to people who are driving that you lived in a police state where, you know, (laughs) my daughter, when she was very little, Stella, and I don't know where she got this, my youngest one, she's a character. She started calling police the popo. And I don't know where she got it from, but like, that's been her thing ever since. So she's 15 now. And she's like, dad, it's the popo. If you want to have people in the city understand that like the popos out there. And if you speed, you're going to get a ticket period. How would that affect driver behavior? I'm conjecturing here. Cause I don't know. I don't know as it's ever been done, but let me give you a- an example from my life that I have experienced in the army. I was a truck driver and, you know, I was in the, the, the army national guard. At Camp Ripley in Minnesota, I would go to guard drills once a month. And then a lot of my summer camps, the two weeks you do in the summer were there as well. There's a there's a road in Camp Ripley that it could be an airport runway. It had 20-foot lanes, four of them, no traffic at all. And the speed limit, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this and you're going to be like, what? And I'm going to say, I'm honest to God telling you the truth. The speed limit was 10 miles an hour.
0: That hurts to think about.
1: Yeah. Don't ask me to explain this. Like, I don't really understand it, but that's, that's, they set it at 10 miles an hour. It was almost physically impossible to drive 10 miles an hour. I remember I had a stick shift at the time. And like, I would, <laughs> if you stayed in first gear, you could keep it at 10 miles an hour. But if you dared to shift into second gear, you, the car would just go over 10 and you couldn't do it. Driving truck, then I would drive these deuce and a half or these five tons, You know, it's a big truck to get moving. Even those, it was hard to keep under 10 miles an hour. Is really hard. Here's the trick. They had MPs there, the military police, all over the place. And when you would get pulled over, you would not get a traffic ticket. Like you would not get like a, you know, $80 fine or $100 fine or whatever. You would get like an article 15. You would get like a serious reprimand on your record. And so there was a huge incentive to not get pulled over. Right? Like everybody was like, Oh my gosh, don't, don't speed. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. You're going to have to go see your CEO. You're going to have to sign that. Like, this is going to go on your permanent record, like your military record. It's going to affect your promotions. It's going to affect everything. People still got pulled over all the time, all the time, all the time. I caught myself many times going 20 miles an hour in this thing. And you'd see the MP up ahead, pulling someone over and you'd go, no, not me, please. And you'd slow way down. It was so hard to keep because it was an artificially low speed. Like it did not, it felt completely abnormal to be driving this slow. Now I was also 19 at the time, uh, probably a little bit more testosterone flowing through my system, you know a little bit less uh, risk averse than I am today, maybe, but I, I don't know. I feel like there's a human nature insight there that says that regardless of the kind of police state enforcement, the popo or whatever you set up, it's really hard to get people to do something unnatural for extended periods of time. And, and I would actually you know suggest, I'm going to throw this out there. I realize that a lot of activists, a lot of people who are public safety activists and you know embrace speed cameras and embrace increased enforcement and, and are advocating for people biking and walking and what have you, they, they have an adversarial relationship with people driving a car. And they will say, well, let's just go out and set up these traffic cams. Let's just go out and have more enforcement. Let's just do this and let's just do that. If the vast majority of your people in your city drive, even if a, a, a sizable minority of people in your city are driving, like in New York City, but, you know, for most of the country, it's 80 percent, 90 percent plus of people are driving to their destinations. You can't maintain a police state. like You can't maintain. People will not accept that level of enforcement. They won't. They just they will vote people out of office. Right.
0: That's really interesting. And it gets back to what we were talking about earlier about how you can't change human nature. But if you know human nature then you can change the environment that humans. I think that's a great way to say it. If the the super militaristic police state can't get you to drive 10 miles an hour on the road that is lined for 70, then why would why would a speed camera change the way you are? Why would a
1: Yeah, no exactly this this is like a five mile straight stretch. Like just you couldn't have made a straighter, flatter road just wide straight. And they had military police parked up and down it and you could not go 10 miles an hour just to, you know, let me, let me give you another story that I think is really, it's, it's always stuck with me. It really goes to the heart of, I think this human conundrum we have, which is, you know, we we're building systems for humans and humans are broken People, I mean, we, we're, we're not perfect, right? Like we, we, are, we are a broken species. We don't do things the optimum way that I think we all think we should. So there's this little city, Pequot Lakes, north of Brainerd. I was their city planner for many, many years. I did city engineering work for them prior to that when I was with the, the firm I was in out of, out of uh, college. Uh, very nice city, I, I like them a lot. But they had a new police officer come in And they had had a number of uh, drunken driving deaths, like people killed because of drunk drivers. And it was very obvious uh, to this police officer, as it was obvious to everyone in the community, that there was a a bar in town. And at closing time at one o'clock, a whole bunch of people would come out of the bar who had been drinking too much. They would get in their cars and they would drive home. Now, I think years, this would have been early 2000s. I think if you had gone back like 10 years or 20 years prior to this incident, the police officer might've just followed them home to make sure they got home or might've, uh, you know, this is a small town stuff. So like, you know, you're trying to like make things work for people. You pull someone over, they're a little tipsy. You're like, Hey, you know, let's let, let me, let me get you home or whatever, Small towns kind of operate in a little bit different paradigm, but they had had some deaths and and some kids, some teenagers that were killed by drunk drivers. And there was a sense that, you know, community-wide that something needed to happen. And so the police officer, the new chief, stationed his officers outside of this bar down the street. And when people left at one in the morning, they would watch them. And when they were driving a little bit suspiciously, they would pull them over And lo and behold, a ridiculously high percentage of them, approaching 100%, would get DWIs. This went on for a very brief period of time, I want to say measured in days, not weeks. And the public outrage was so high that the police chief was hauled in front of the city council and directed to stop this abusive practice, this abusive targeting, because it was bad for business. It was bad for the community. It caught some high profile, you know, like mucky mucks in the place. And he basically wound up leaving after a short period of time because he's like, I can't, I can't do my job here. Now, you may look at that and say, wow, that is really dysfunctional. And I would look at that and say, that is really dysfunctional. Like, how can a city, like, how can we condone that? Like, how does that make any sense? Again, I'll get back to the idea. We're not designing these systems for perfect people. We're designing these systems for broken people, for people who compromise their own values time from time to time. Who, you know, you and I may say we we think people should drive very safely, and then someday we'll look down and we're going five miles over the speed limit. They're like, "Oops, I, I compromised my own values." There, we're broken people, and I think if we don't take that into account in our designs, we're we're doing something wrong.
0: That's a that's a really compelling story,
1: actually. <laughs> It makes me kind of embarrassed to say it because like I said, I, I think these are all good people. I know the people on the council, they're all good people. They have kids, you know, like they have kids that could get hit by a drunk driver, you know, none of them want this, but yet, you know, it was seen as like very heavy handed, very, um, you know, not the type of approach that you would want to take and not like socially acceptable in that community.
0: Yeah. The approach that's going to help is one that, uh, incentivizes the safe behavior or, or enhances your ability to have safe behavior, even when you're maybe compromising your values?
1: Well, and let me put it this way. And this is what I tried to write in Confessions, too, as clearly as I could. Um, we want law enforcement to be able to focus on people who deviate from acceptable behavior. Right? Let's just take speeding as an example. If the speed limit is 20 or 25, but almost everybody drives 35 or 40, what good is law enforcement at that point? It's not addressing like a deviant from societal norms. The societal norms are, you know, uh, 40 miles an hour. Like, I, how do you go out and just say everybody in the community is a deviant? I mean, let's what lock everybody up. Like that doesn't, that, that, that is not a viable law enforcement strategy. And let me, let me take this into a different realm just by way of an analogy. One of the conversations we're having in Minnesota and in many States around the union is about like the legalization of marijuana. And one of the insights of people who are pro legalization is that a huge percentage of the population smokes marijuana. And so, you know, are we going to criminalize, give me a percentage, 25%, 30%, 50%? I don't know what it is, um, but the percent of the, uh, of the population, no, we're not going to. And so what happens is we pick on you know, minorities or we pick on people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time or, or what have you, um, and people see that as being unfair, which I think is rightly so. The same thing goes with Speedy. You know, if, if 50% of the population, or I think in a lot of places, it's, it's 95% of the population, are breaking a certain speeding law, uh, law enforcement is the wrong tool for that. Like, you're not getting uh, at what is actually going on. Like, enforcement, uh, what you want is you want a situation where it is easy for 95% of people, you know, it's easy, it's easy for 100% of people to follow the law. The law makes sense. And 100% of the people would normally follow it, but there'll be a percentage, 1%, 2%, 5% of people who will function in that setting as a deviant, who will you know, deviate from the cultural norm, which is to follow the law. And so you know, that's where enforcement really helps you. Enforcement is of no use at all. It's of no service in any way. If 95% of the people are breaking the law, Like then it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense the wrong tool.
0: I love that phrasing. Do you think we have time for one more question?
1: I think we have time for at least one more question.
0: All right. Well, (laughs) I have one more. Okay. Uh, I'll try um, to be
1: shorter with my answer on this one.
0: No, no. Take take all the time you need. (laughs) The listeners are with you, Chuck. Uh, Well, we'll see. (laughs) Um, The last one I've got for you is from Santa Rosa, California. Evan Wig, Is watching his community go through a planning process that has three options that he that he is sharing with us. One is kind of stay the course, do what they're already doing, and he's not talking about that one. Of the other two, the first one focuses uh, future commercial and residential growth near the existing downtown and along central thoroughfares in a compact, transit-oriented form of development.
1: (sighs) The second option. I'm I'm already groaning. Keep going. Well, I'll
0: tell you the second one. Now. The second option is uh, it concentrates development on multiple uh, "quote unquote" neighborhood main streets with less of a focus on the downtown. These are the two options that that his community is discussing, and one seems to be more about investing in what you have, and the other seems to be more about fleshing out kind of a more diversified approach.
1: Yeah. So uh, I, I can't, whenever I hear people describe these type of playing processes, I, I, I always think of like the Joker in the dark Knight series where he's, he's in the, uh, he's in the hospital with, uh, you know, two face now with Harvey and, um, you know, he's talking to him and he's like, you, you had your schemer, you have schemes, you got plans. And I just took your plan and I turned it on its little head. It's always like, to me, it's, we're 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 in this place where we're like trying to, in a sense, be smarter than the world. And we're like, here's here's how we're gonna plan this. Here's how we're gonna get out and do. Okay, L- let me just set a couple base realities for people who are trying to do this type of work. The first one is that you have built way more stuff than you can maintain. You're you're not making new investments and stuff responsibly. You're not going out and building new things responsibly. You should be in a mode of how do we actually make good on promises we've already made. And in that case, you're actually not asking where are we going to you know push development. Where are we going to uh, you know make investments to create development? You're you're saying things like how do we allow the next increment of development to happen in all these places and have that development be compatible with the surrounding neighborhood. And then you are stepping back and you are watching where it happens. You you, you see the difference? Whenever we start talking about, oh, we're going to emphasize development in the downtown, or we're going to emphasize development along transit corridors, or we're going to, we're going to, you know, uh, emphasize development in the neighborhood level. Great. What I tend to see with these plans is, We're going to go out and this is where we're going to put our tax subsidy in. This is where we're going to loosen up our codes and have, you know, jumps, huge jumps in density and huge jumps in development intensity. Here's where we're going to put our uh, Tiger grant or our, you know, our infrastructure fund money into building new infrastructure. I think that we have to step back and recognize that cities are complex adaptive systems. We have completely screwed them up. Uh, we don't really know how to fix them, and so what we have to do is we have to take a humble approach that says uh, we're going to allow every neighborhood to breathe and flex and grow, and then we're going to seed uh, by by you know the four step process we developed at Strong Towns, going out and making small investments to uh you know to address where people are struggling in the community, and we are going to like a gardener in a garden nurture up each neighborhood and one over here may grow really fast and may be a transit node and may have all you know and may wind up going through two or three generations of growth in the next two decades and this one over here might only get to you know the first generation over the next two decades the reality is is that we don't know which one is going to work out all we know is that we've overbuilt our infrastructure commitments And we have to be respectful of the community as people co-create with us and help us figure this out. So I hate this plan. And maybe I'm misunderstanding the approach, but when I've seen things like this and I've seen questions put forward like this before, it, it feels a lot like we're trying to drive and direct the future. When I think if we look back over the last 30 or 40 years, we should recognize that our attempts to do that have made things really screwed up. And what we should be doing is focusing on taking care of what we have, making things incrementally better for the people in our neighborhoods, and allowing the next wave of our city, the next version of our city to emerge uh, You know, from, from the systems that we already have in place.
0: So what cities do, what cities who are not... Um not in the strong towns approach yet do is they they come up with a couple of different options and none of them are the strong towns approach and then they present those options those two or three options as your choices so and and then as as you've pointed out they're not the they're not the strong towns approach they're not the approach that's going to necessarily have the best result over time but how do people who are in a position like Evan Wig uh, advocate for the best approach given those constraints. That's
1: a that's an even harder question. You know, I don't know where he's at. If he's part of the government, part of the decision making process, or if he's not. If he's an observer, as an observer, I would not be spending a lot of time at that level in my community. I'd be spending a lot more time at the block level and the neighborhood level and say, how can I get things going here? How do I get my neighbors talking? How do I get us working on projects here in this neighborhood? How do we create a coherent group of people that can then, you know, go to city hall and say, Hey, I don't care what plan you adopted two or three years ago. Here's what our neighborhood needs right now. And we've done these things to kind of demonstrate that. And so we want you to come out and do this. Um, You know, I, I think that that is uh, where I would, I would go to if I were an outsider in this system. I was on my city's comprehensive planning committee and I did this video at the end for a friend of mine who was also on the committee where when they sent out the final draft, it looked nothing like, it was, it was just a dumb document. And it, I I did this video of me like taking it and like just tossing it in the garbage. (laughs) I'm like, this is what, this is what's going to, this is the end result of this process. And we both got kind of a chuckle out of that because we had been part of it. Um, And obviously I'm, not a neophyte in this. I had a big influence on the conversations we were having, but the end result is just this really static, not relevant, kind of bulky, unhelpful document. And for the most part, that's what I find most plans to be. Go back a hundred years ago and look at the neighborhood. The plan was the streets that are here, the alleys that are here, the park that is here, the sidewalks that are here, the infrastructure, was ultimately planned to be in this neighborhood. It's all in place. They never set and planned like this house will go here and this size business will go here. And this corner will be uh, you know, a neighborhood grocery. And this corner over here will be a high density apartment. And this corner here will have that. What they said is that each of these blocks is going to evolve and adapt at its own rate and pace based on the people who live in the neighborhood, the desirability of that neighborhood, all the things that come together. And we can't direct that. All we can do is create like the lattice, the framework, the structure where that evolution can happen. For the most part, our cities have way too much structure, way too much lattice, way too much framework, and not enough stuff. And so we can either continue on as this like atrophied, uh, you know, kind of flushed out kind of system with nothing really growing on it and try to force something in one place or another, or we can step back with some humility and say, we've really screwed this up. We've got to get some substance back. Let's allow every neighborhood to flex, every neighborhood to breathe, every neighborhood to expand, and then you know go out and seed those great projects with these small little investments and see where the momentum starts and then support that. Support the next increment everywhere across a broad scale. I think that the, I think that our entire vision of what local government is and how it functions needs to change. And we need to throw out the entire notion of like having silos and hierarchies that deliver these completed projects to us as a way to build place. And I think we need to get a lot more, let me put it this way. We need a lot fewer engineers and planners and a lot more social workers and like urban designers.
0: We've had questions like this before, when you and I have done these Q&A podcasts about people who are trying to make the best of the bad options that their city is presenting to them. And I think that we're probably gonna continue to get this question on the questions for Strong Towns, on the Action Lab, and when you talk to people in their own communities and when people email us. If I can re say something that you said the last time we had this Please.
1: discussion. Yeah. And
0: maybe more bluntly than you would put it. Go ahead, go ahead. If you're dealing if if you are in a community that is dealing with this kind of decision, then it's probably too late to uh, to try to infuse the strong towns approach into that decision. It's
1: not the right place to do it, yeah.
0: That might be your cue to like Chuck is saying start putting down the groundwork for the next time so that so that these conversations are influenced by the strong town's approach from their inception rather than by the time there's three options and you can only choose one of them yeah
1: so I, I did the plenary last week at CNU. I was one and Christopher Coes from the US doT was there. Uh, him and I shared the the stage and, and had a conversation after we each spoke. The, the emphasis of my remarks, you know, I began with a recitation of the American Jobs Plan, the big infrastructure bill that was passed last year. And I, I put together this chart and I said, the president's plan, and I, I highlighted the language from it, I, I quoted directly from it, it said there's 173,000 miles of road currently in poor condition right? So that is a list that will grow every year. More and more roads will go from fair condition to poor condition. And that is a list that will continue to grow. Of the 173,000 miles, and I I put that up in like a bar graph, and I said, the president's plan is only going to fix 20,000 of them, right? There's a tiny percentage of them. And this with like the biggest investment in infrastructure that we've ever had, that we've had, you know, I listened to, to Secretary Buttigieg today, say this is the largest investment in infrastructure since the Eisenhower administration. Okay. The largest investment in infrastructure since the Eisenhower administration is not even paying for 12% of the roads already in poor condition. What that means is that there's no mechanism to fix the stuff we've already built. And if your city is not grappling with that fact, If they're sitting there saying, well, we're going to get this infrastructure money, where do we direct it? What neighborhoods do we grow in? How do we continue this process we have, but just refine it a little bit so we get transit oriented development or we get good corridors or we get mixed use? You're not struggling with reality as it's presenting itself. And I, I don't know how more plainly to say it, that you're living in like a fantasy world and you're trying to, you know, do something clean and tidy in a scenario that is actually really messy and really difficult. And I I think if you don't grasp that latter fact, um, you can talk all you want about things like equity and climate change and, you know, sustainability and put all the buzzwords in your plan. You're not doing a real plan that is in touch with reality. You're not because no one, I mean, this was, I said this over and over again, my plenary, no one is coming to save your city. Nobody is coming to give you a bunch of money to fix the stuff that you can't fix. And so you got to have a plan that like deals with that reality. And if you're doing like a traditional comp plan uh, using traditional, like, you know, let's get everybody in a group and put sticker charts on the walls and have people comment on this or that, and then we'll come up with three different scenarios and project out what a 20% population increase over the next two decades will mean, you might as well quit your job and let someone else do it because you're wasting everyone's time.
0: If that's how you really feel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you pushed me to, uh, to be a little bit more uh, outspoken.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time check answering these questions and I really enjoy like getting to have these conversations and be a part of these conversations so
1: thank you. Well, you should bring your own questions too, because you always have like hard ones for me. Like
0: one of these days, you always I, I ask me thinking, these hard
1: questions, and I'm like, "Well, Lauren, let me think about that."
0: I'll give them to you in advance. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but maybe maybe next time I'll come with one of
1: my own. All right. Well, thank you, and thank you everyone for listening. If we went a little bit over bonus uh, podcast, because like I said, I I don't know when we'll be back. We'll try to be back soon, but uh, in the meantime. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. Take care, Lauren. Thank you. Know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story.
0: Chuck Morone, this has been fascinating.
1: Oh Magnus city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world.